Welcome to our April edition of Cinetopia Radio Show and Podcast, our first remote edition and from the safety of our own homes. I'm Amanda from Cinetopia here in Leith and remotely with Jim, managing editor of Take One magazine and fellow producer of the show, who's in Leith, is that correct? Uh, close enough, close enough. Yeah. Ha- halfway between Leith and the city centre. Um, so I can't see the water, unfortunately, but... Um... You know, well, it is what yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the water and the ships uh, right from my window, um, and it's a lovely day today. Um, and also, we're, I'm here again with fairly new contributors to the podcast, but not to Cinetopia per se, uh, Carice Evans and Betty Stoinich, and their homes in Edinburgh. Um, Betty, how are you doing? Um, I'm fine. I've been having a very boring couple of weeks, mostly uh, doing schoolwork, focusing on some essays and playing a bunch of Magic the Gathering, and that's about it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and Carice, I, I've heard you have a new furry family member, is that correct? I do, yeah. Uh, I'm coming at you from a very sunny meadow bank today. Um, we got a puppy just before lockdown, um, so he's been keeping us busy. I've wrestled an avocado, a satsuma, and a couple of notebooks out of his mouth today, so <laughs> lots of fun in the uh, Evans household. Keeping you occupied. Indeed. Um, we're finally back for this April edition, and it's been quite a month for all of us. Uh, it seems like a year since we last recorded, and for me, time goes by very slow when you're in lockdown. Um, I've been listening to a barrage of incredibly sad and overwhelming news and also watching the entirety of a bunch of TV series um, and engaging in online Zoom meetings, webinars, etc., and I feel like I've done a lot of the above with relative success, depending on the day. Uh, so what have you guys been up to? I've been mentioning that you've had school and whatnot, but normally we we ask, uh, you know, like what film events and, and stuff. Have you seen anything interesting on online, like uh, webinars or, or um, Q&As or, or whatnot? I'd love to say that I had... Um seen any of these things i've seen lots of interesting things going on you know there's webinars curzon are doing uh q a's with directors of things um i i am pretty ashamed to say for somebody who's basically co-producing a film-based radio show that i've spent most of my time playing football manager 2020 um but there is quite a lot out there if people want to um want to you know get into the weeds with some films i th- I think what it'll be a bit easier to deal with i think in the coming weeks because i think the entire system is kind of recalibrating itself a little bit i think in the initial weeks of the lockdown you basically had a bit of a an issue where you know basically it was kind of unexpected or at least nobody was really set up for it uh, whereas now i think um distributors even some exhibitors are beginning to adjust to it a little bit or at least as best they can so those that are set up to do stuff remotely and deliver things digitally or beginning to do so. And there's a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the Curzon, I actually, um, I've thought of you and Serena because I saw an interview with, um, Joanna Hogg about the souvenir, uh, the other night and, uh, quite remembered how much I enjoyed the film and, um, also, uh, how there's, there's a second one coming up, but remembered, uh, your thoughts on it. Yeah. I, I've tried not to remember my thoughts on it. <laughs> anyway, Betty, how about you? You said you were you've been um, you've been studying. So how is like how is university studies under lockdown right now? 
Um, I think that's something that's really going to depend on, like, what specifically you're studying. So I study a theoretical course in film studies, which means that I'm, I've gotten pretty lucky in the sense that, like, now I can just devote mo most of my time to reading and writing at the moment. Um, we did think about doing some live online lectures. Uh, what we ended up doing was mostly uh, getting sent video recordings of, of the lectures rather than doing them via Zoom or stream or something like that. Um, but ultimately, you know, I'm a post-grad film studies student, so lectures aren't really the center point of that kind of course, um, which means that, again, I have this opportunity to write a lot and do a lot of research, which is actually nice, but I also know that I can't really speak for students that are um, that need certain facilities at the uni um, in, or in order to do their work. So I'm not really sure how those students are coping, but I have to say I'm doing pretty well. Well, it's also good that you, you feel like you can write at home as well, because I remember I had to go to the library every day just to focus, but you see me do. Carice, uh, I know that you've mentioned that you've been uh, doing a lot of online um, watching with friends and family. Um, how's that been going? Uh, yes, I've been watching with my dad. So he's down in London um, and uh, we've been watching the BBC TV adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, mm. um, which is really good. So it's made in, I think it was like the 70s. Um, incredible cast um, and um, uh, really great to be able to watch it in a slightly longer form. Uh, than the film, uh, especially with all this time on our hands, uh, but it doesn't come uh, without technical difficulties. So I spend um, a lot of it trying to sync up because we're watching on separate devices and separate houses and separate cities. Um, there's probably an easier way to do it, but at the moment we're just doing it like that. Uh, but it's nice to still be able to sort of spend time with someone and, and watch something with them. So I've been enjoying that for sure. That's great. And um, you're still working then correctly with the um, Edinburgh International Film Festival remotely, correct? Uh, no, so um, the Centre for the Moving Image um, made the decision to put the majority of staff on furlough um, just to be sure that we can kind of make it through this really difficult time and hopefully come back uh, strong in the, well, fingers crossed in the autumn time. Um, so yeah, most of, most of the staff are on furlough at the moment, but, uh, yeah, the organization is doing a great job at keeping everyone sort of paid, um, and keeping us all together. So we've got like Friday night quizzes that we do, um, and everyone's sort of still staying in contact and, uh, that's quite nice. So it still feels like we have a workspace, even if, uh, it's a little bit disbanded for now. Well, that's great to hear um, that you guys are, and we're looking forward to hearing more about the Edinburgh International Film Festival when they plan to come back, when they can tell us. Um, obviously, it's a really important festival for the, our city and one of my favorites. Um, and uh, I think you might have just heard the news that Cannes is not going to be coming back as planned. Um, did, any thoughts on that? I think it's they're going to do it in another way, like... Um, what do we think it's going to be like on the web or whatnot yeah i thought it was quite an interesting one because they i think it was about a week after edinburgh said that they were postponing this year can jumped into the eff slot 
um, which felt quite, uh, I don't know, lots of feelings, but definitely, particularly, yeah. probably being a, getting a little bit ahead of themselves and thinking that that, you know, month would would bring about a sort of significant change and make it safe again to, to have a festival like Cannes as well, where you've got people traveling, certainly from all over the world. Um, and I did notice that um, this week up, film aside that the Tour de France has been postponed to August um, we lost our uh, f- you know the Fringe as well has, has been cancelled this year but um, I, I'm interested to see if that actually would be able to happen as well because I've, from what I've been told um, sports events in general would be would be cancelled um, until quite a while but um, yeah we'll keep looking in, into into this, this like like Jim mentioned I think some of these stuff these things will unfold as time goes on and whatnot. Um, but the good news is that we have had a little, a lot of time to review films and series for this show. Um, this episode will be reviewing the widely talked about docu-series Tiger King, which has been all the talk on the internet and FaceTime chats around the world. Um, at least mine. Um, if you haven't heard of it, that's fine, but chances are you have, and you've either seen the trailer, a few episodes, or devoured the whole thing. I have a feeling our group will have quite a debate on this one, um, so that's why we're doing it. Um, and uh, I, you know, trying to be part of the chatter of this weird era of our life. Um, we'll also be reviewing some films that um, either are currently online or about to be. Um, we'll be reviewing the film Emma, uh, directed by Pablo Lorraine, which originally premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival last year. Um, and I believe it's out on movie online streaming service um, the 2nd of May. Uh, then we'll be reviewing Mafi, which was directed by Oliver Hermanis, a South African director, um, is out on Curzon Home Cinema on the 24th of April. And finally, we'll be, um, interview, uh, we'll be reviewing Vivarium, uh, which premiered in Cannes last year, um, but has been out in the UK since the 27th of March. Jim also sat down with Lorcan Finnegan, the director of the film, so we'll be hearing an edited version of that video chat as well, which is very cool. Um, we'll also be hosting our interviews, both uh, future and past, on our new YouTube channel. So if you'd like to take a look at some of the stuff we've done in the past um, or, you know, just check out those interviews, uh, go check out our YouTube channel now. Um, bear with us. We're still learning this remote technology, but if all goes well, uh, we're hoping to do a few more of these and hopefully making some of these live in the next um, few uh few episodes while on lockdown um so that means if you have any suggestions i think one of the reasons why we're doing tiger king is um there had been a few requests of us doing some some mainstream stuff um stuff that's you know quite available um or talked about so we thought about doing um you know a docu-series this time um we're looking at maybe doing some you know, so other TV series for, for the future stuff. But if you have any suggestions, please um, reach out to us, um, you know, whether it's on, um, on, on social media or whatnot, um, and give us your, your thoughts and reviews of, of these as well. And we'll share it on our future shows. Hey, all you cats and kittens, we're back on the Cinetopia podcast. And if you've seen the docuseries Tiger King, you know that line comes from the unforgettable Carol Baskin. This docuseries, directed by Eric Good and Rebecca Chaikin, has received a lot of attention, particularly, I think, because it came out literally as most of the Western world who has access to Netflix 
um, were came under lockdown. What is this film or docu series? Uh, it primarily follows the lives of American big cat owners, backyard zoos, cub petting businesses, and big cat sanctuaries. Most notably, a guy named um, Joseph Allen Maldonado Passage, otherwise known as Joe Exotic. He was previously the owner of GW Zoo in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, it's, it really deals with his longtime, very visible and vocal feud with Tampa-based cat sanctuary, and I say sanctuary in quotes, owner Carol Baskin, um, who at the, at the first part of the series, docuseries suggests he's in jail for an attempted murder on her. Um, other characters who make this docuseries even more interesting and rather creepy would be um, Doc Antle of the Myrtle Beach Safari um, and Mario Tabro, an alleged leader of um, a drug ring in the 80s in Miami, and also perhaps the, um, the inspiration behind the film Scarface. But there's also like many different characters who help uh, run and uh, Joe's operation as well. Um, to me, is this show sensationalist entertainment? Um, absolutely. The film was sold to some of these characters in the series as being the blackfish for big cats. Um, I think particularly Carol Baskin was quite upset about how she's portrayed, and I can imagine why. Um, but, uh, you know, personally, I didn't really like blackfish, and so my argument is that it probably has brought more attention to this situation, um, you know, focusing on the characters uh, you know who are owning these cats um by the fact that so many people have now seen it um i i'm very curious um uh i you know what what you all think of this so let's start with uh betty i guess betty what do you think of the film so i have i, w I would say that i have mixed feelings about the series but they're mixed in the sense that like they go in all kinds of extremes in the sense of like, I was extremely entertained by it, but I thought it was an incredibly fun watch. At the same time, it's ultimately a true crime show, which might just be my least favorite genre of television. Um, I find true crime to be extremely ethically dubious, like at the best of times, because a lot of true crime shows tend to, you know, dramatize things and sensationalize them in a way that sort of makes these events, you know, they turn these events into cheap TV, you know, even though, like, the whole point of true crime is that it's, you know, things that ostensibly actually happened, and yet these, you know, true events end up being reframed into this sort of, like, you know, corny TV show, which should be theoretically, like, exactly why you're, you know, exactly why you're, you know, not watching um, you know, just a cheesy crime drama, but I feel like one thing that sort of redeems Tiger King in this sense is that, like, the filmmakers approached a bunch of protagonists that have already had decades, you know, to sensationalize themselves and to narrativize their own lives, um, because, you know, in the case of Joe Exotic, you know, he had a very long media presence already and like his whole persona is sort of based around this idea of wanting to be famous more than anything which means that like a lot of the sensationalist stuff uh from tiger king you know comes from joe himself you know this is stuff that he already made you know like all of the footage 
not all of the footage, but a good chunk of the footage was stuff that, you know, he and his zoo had already taken taken themselves with the express purpose of creating a narrative about his zoo that is crazy, that is insane. Um, and that sort of pushes the boundaries of, you know, the believable. Like, my personal, I don't know if you guys were um, at all familiar with Joe Exotic before this, but I remember watching a John Oliver show when Joe Exotic was featured um, as the libertarian presidential candidate. Um, and I remember thinking that was just like a weird, cute aside for a John Oliver show. But, you know, the fact that now it's turned into this like, you know, what is it? Seven episode saga about about these feuds, like seeing that blow up in that way is just incredible to me. And I think, you know, just from even the most minimal uh, exposure someone can have to Joe Exotic, uh, you know that the show is the way it is because Joe's life is that way, or rather, like he'd always wanted to present it that way in a way, you know, even, you know, bits that aren't quite as favorable to him or to his character end up working out in his favor, you know, like, I'm, I read somewhere that, like, Donald Trump was asked if he would pardon Joe Exotic, um, so, you know, it has all the cynicism of any true crime show, but it's taken to such a comic extreme that, in a way, it makes it better. Well, but I'd also say that's somewhat of the criticism, I think, given the fact like you have people like, you know, Donald Trump, who was asked whether he would be pardoned and, you know, Cardi B, who's saying things like free Joe Exotic. And the truth of the matter is, you know, the guy did abuse animals for decades. And, you know, there's 17 counts of animal abuse. You know, it's it's it makes for good TV, but it's still a, a serious, controversial problem. Carice. What did you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we could give the the um, producer, the co-director and producer of this uh, shit films, are we calling it a film? Series. Sorry. <laughs> series, yeah, you series, know. Docu-series. Um, yeah, so I guess we could give the, the co-director and producer of this docu-series um, benefit of the doubt and say that they kind of set out to make something that was about uh, exposing um, how ghastly the um, exotic pet uh, industry is in the US um, and they just kind of you know got thrown so much other material that it becomes you know so much bigger than that and so kind of um, distracted from that but I think like anyone who was going and, and, and meeting this these characters uh, these people for the first time would be able to tell immediately that this is, you know, this is going to go off in so many, so many other directions. And <clears throat> like you say, you know, there have been other um, uh, popular uh, culture moments where Joe Exotic himself and and a few other of the the people in the in the docu series have uh, featured. So you know, they're not completely unknown uh, characters. Uh, I mean, I really liked it. I I think I liked it as the larger than life entertainment um that it is and i also like it from a perspective where i i i can't i can't watch it and see how it could 
be seen to glamorize or promote or enhance or encourage the the exotic um animal uh, big cat kind of pet ownership industry but i'm aware that that does come from a place where it would take a lot to convert me into to thinking that that was a, a kind of a worthwhile industry you know i actually read a vanity fair article that said that the um the director, Eric, who you see in the film, you know, doing a lot of the interviews, um, was actually wanting it to be much more of a blackfish conservationist film. And Netflix went back to him and saw the footage and said, no, no, we need to hand this up. We need to make it more about um, about the people and the characters. Um, I, I agree that it's, uh, I mean, I personally find it entertaining. I'm from Florida and I can't tell you as someone who grew up in Florida, how many times, I mean, I actually think Gatorland is a quite hilarious, um, you know, theme park, which is also a sanctuary, if you will, um, in Kissimmee, Florida. But you drive up and down these, uh, these, uh, highways and you see these, uh, you know, these billboards for these like backyard parks. And I don't think, we ever got, you know, have ever had any interest in going there. So this is exposing me to, my, you know, an understanding of a world that I'm, you know, I, I find is abhorrent. And so I, I think based on the entertainment factor, I think, again, there are more people probably going to see this than another kind of environmental, you know, hard hitting documentary. Um, and that's, that's, you know, so, so that's comes with pros and cons for sure. Jim, I'm just dying to hear what you think about this. <laughs> I fucking hated this to the depths of my bones. I like, I, you know, when when I've been since I've been doing this show, right? I before this, I had a reputation for kind of going off on rants about things, right? And I've tried to be measured and you know calm and like talk about things. Honest to God, Tiger King just annoyed the absolute shit out of me from start to finish. Um. It is interesting to hear because I didn't know what you said about the the fact that it was originally, or at least the director, the team behind it were aiming for more of a, a blackfish type thing, and it was Netflix that actually um, kind of changed the focus. It doesn't particularly surprise me because on a flight recently I watched another Netflix. Uh, it was a mini series in this case, again true crime called "Don't Don't F with Cats," mm-hmm. right? And that annoyed me in exactly the same way. I, it's more just it's this. I I I felt horrendous watching it. Right, I I continue to watch it out of a sense of duty. I probably shouldn't have because I'm just here to piss on everybody's parade right now. But it was centered on this guy who wants nothing more than to be famous, and we've given him seven forty-five minute episodes of him being him. I mean, that's basically what it is. And I'm not, I'm not terribly surprised that Carol Baskin isn't particularly happy with her portrayal in it, given that one entire episode is basically devoted to basically insinuating that she murdered her husband and put him into a meat grinder to be fed to tigers. <laughs> so that kind of gives you the idea of the level of the show, quite frankly. And I just, it just, it seemed to be focusing on, like, really, and it was interesting. It was interesting that like Betty mentioned the fact that. She was watching last week tonight with John Oliver, right? Because as this show was going on, I kept looking at Joe Exotic and thinking to myself, "Where have I seen this guy before? I recognise this guy." 
and then in the show they put up this this clip from John Oliver's show, and I remember that, and that was it. That's where I recognised him from. And I remembered that segment, and to be honest with you, my interest and in, in my opinion, anyway, the, the interest in Joe Exotic as a person, right, which is what the majority of this show focuses on. My interest started and ended with that skit. Like you, you got about I don't know three or four minutes. That that's really about as much as I think he, he's worth. And after that, there's just there's various things which made me a little uncomfortable. Like there's there's CCTV footage of um, his Joe Exotic, one of Joe Exotic's uh, husband's suicide, basically. Um, and and obviously you don't you don't see the husband, but you see you see somebody reacting to it, and it just it felt a little bit gross and exploitative and. It did, in that respect, it did really remind me of that other uh, miniseries, which went into, so Don't F With Cats went into this bit at the end about how, oh, by watching this, are we glorifying it? And it made me quite angry because the actions of the people inside the, the documentary were very different to that of uh, watching it. It it feels like it's aiming for this... I, I it, it has this pretense of being... Um, about big cat exploitation, you know, about this ownership of big cats in the United States. It is a passing thought, um, and it is given, it is done to give it this veneer of journalism, in my opinion. And apart from that, it's basically, it, it, it's a walking meme factory. I didn't really, I realise I'm being a miserable git, but I didn't really get anything out of it in that respect, because that's all I found. I would disagree it. that um, it, I mean, I think that the beginning and end of that film, it um, at least specifically, has the titles up, which you would see with a classical, classic environmental documentary that describes the nature of the situation, which is massive. The fact that there are more, um, you know, big cats living in America than there are actually in the wild and that you have people like Shaquille O'Neal or whatnot you know like who own who own them I think it's actually my my question to you is have you seen the act of killing because we have talked about this that film being something that's a brilliant sort of film and again you know in the way that it's directed and all that stuff you know it's it's arguably a brilliant film um but that's giving attention to perpetrators as well in this way that's sort of you know questions the morality of of giving of giving people you know for vanity i, I, I mean in, in that sense um, very much i i agree um and that it, it is a tricky ethical one i think the the thing that I, I think the thing that i find with this is talking about like you know the ownership of big cats in the states and who you're giving the focus to it, it not only is this a little tricky ethically but also I mean, this is seven episodes. I mean, like the, the the amount of material that has been wrung out of this guy is absolutely incredible. And when you think about the issue we're talking about and how long this series is and what it focuses on, there is a qualitative difference between that and talking about something like um, genocide over a, a shorter time period. Um, like I think if this had been, you know, an hour and a half special. I might have actually had less of an issue with it because the substance, or at least the the substance to cookiness ratio, would have been substantially different. Um, but in this case, I mean, we've basically got whole swathes of this which are dedicated to 
Carol Baskin's husband disappearing. You've got another whole swathe of it that's dedicated to his run for Oklahoma. I mean, I mean, really, I mean, his run for if, if we're talking about it, like raising awareness of any issues or educating people about it. I mean, you know, I mean, what do I care if he ran for Oklahoma governor? He pointedly, as far as I can remember, doesn't mention how many votes he got because I mean, I would imagine he got absolutely sawed off. It, it's nothing more than a curio, but that is spun out into like an enormous amount of time, and it's. It, it annoys me this idea that it pretends it is doing some sort of noble thing when it's not. It's a caricature of this guy. It, it's designed to create memes. It's designed to have people dressing up as him at Halloween. Like the very fact that Donald Trump got asked if he was pardoned, if he would pardon Joe Exotic. And like, you know, you got people saying, you know, free Joe Exotic. Like, honestly, like that shows you. If, what it says its goal was, it is not achieved. But I don't think that was its goal. I think its goal was to put across Joe Exotic and it was basically the Netflix equivalent of a freak show. Like really. And it didn't it did not do it for me because if that's all it's doing, then across seven episodes, nah, no thank you. Um so I just wanted to say that, you know, I did ultimately like this as a show in itself, but in terms of like the ethical aspect um, I feel like there's not a character, you know, that's prominent in this show d that doesn't claim that what they're doing is dedicated to big cat conservation. So, like, Joe himself talks about raising awareness and educating people and how that's what his zoo is all about, but obviously it isn't. And in a way, the show itself at times feel like it's feels like it's kind of replicating that in the sense that, like, it'll tack on um you know some statistics about you know how endangered tigers are at the very end but up until that point it was a show that had you know like cliffhangers and stuff you know and like other devices that just you know really upped the the drama of the whole thing um which if it's you know ultimately the doing of netflix rather than the filmmakers themselves um I think that's actually really the that's actually really interesting because at that point, you know, you're kind of faced with the situation where you want to create a show um that talks about an issue that's, you know, overlooked a lot of the time. Um, you know, I certainly didn't know about this scene at all even though, you know, after a while it feels kind of, feels kind of obvious because You've seen wild cats in, like, a music video or something. I think everybody has. Um, and only now do you realize where they probably come from. And, you know, in that respect, you know, that does sort of make you think about this stuff. You know, about animals being used as props, etc. But it's all packaged into this, like, um, you know, again, extremely cynical show that, you know, includes a lot of very questionable footage, um, as Jim pointed out. But at the same time, like, if you want people to actually watch the show, and you kind of, and, you know, you want to make it into something that's going to become as big as it did, um, you know, will you ultimately have to, you know, agree with these, um, well, from... Amanda, what you said from these like requests that Netflix made, you know, if you are you go, do you have to agree with those things uh, in order to make a show that's ultimately going to talk about something that you actually believe is like socially important? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the... I personally feel like if this was... With the amount of footage that they had, they were shooting for probably on and off but for five years in total I think was the the sort of span of the film um and as I mentioned there was a lot of footage that was incorporated in from um uh people involved in the in the um docuseries itself I think if it had been any shorter you'd have had a risk of kind of not fleshing out the full picture because I I felt when I was watching it that whilst many other things did progress as the seven episodes went on, that one of the other things that happened was that new, like a new character was introduced, a new, um, a, often a character with their own park or with their own kind of um, enterprise or uh, business that definitely kind of feeds into this kind of awful uh, industry. Um, and I think that that was quite important in terms of like showing how massive the issue is that it's not this kind of like one small locale in um, in Florida. It's uh, you know it's the the Bhagavan guy who and and every new character comes with like multiple other kind of uh, ghastly uh, extras. <laughs> like you know it's it's uh, um, the big cat thing, but it's I mean I, I think the the, I mean, if you list out some of the, the themes that are in, involved in this, you, you know, you've got, um, uh, there's cults, there's modern slavery, there's, um, uh, you know, sexual exploitation, there's so much other stuff going on. And I feel like that builds to the rotten core that is the, the kind of exotic pet ownership. And those characters kind of keep getting introduced and keep showing how this is like a, a systemic issue and uh, you know across the US and um, it it's not it's not something that can be sort of turned a blind eye into uh, just sorry I'm, I'm kind of talking circles now um, that this is a systemic issue across the US um, and I also think that like similar to sort of what Betty was saying about it being um, uh, the entertainment of it does bring in that that massive audience. Like, I found myself like both online and the occasional times that I'm leaving a house at the moment. Like, I was in Sainsbury's the other day, and people were talking about Carol Baskin behind me, and you know, it is it's it it sends that ripple, and it's so so infrequent now that you have that kind of like event television, that kind of sense of everyone's watching the same thing at the same time, and I think this series has really done that, um, and that is nice for one reason right now because we all feel so disconnected that it's nice to feel that we are all connected around one shared kind of interest and hatred of these characters um but i also think that disconnect me <laughs> just disconnect me <laughs> disconnect me right now <laughs> um but also i i think that you're right and that you you do reach that audience by throwing in some little weird and wacky treats along the way um yeah i mean i i was concerned about those animals the entire time particularly because i think very with the beginning there was this conversation about the amount of money that one needs to take care of and then the massive amount of animals they were they were 
in and the idea that I've pretty much, you know, been anti-zoo for, you know, quite a long time. So my concern was always when you're having these like abuse issues of, you know, or loss of money or seeing the way that Joe, Joe Exotic was treating, uh, abusing the the people who worked with him, you know, I in my the back of my head, I was always going back to the fact that there there were, you know, there was a whole zoo of animals that were probably not being treated well. Um, I think that it is a psychological conversation about about what happens when, and I think the end kind of em emphasizes that, um, you know, where were people's original plans in this and in getting involved, you know, was it the excitement of holding a big cat? And I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand, like, I know that there was this whole phenomenon, I don't know if it still exists, of like, you know, guys with selfies of big cats and stuff. And I saw that like six years ago or something. And I was just like, why is that there and you know what what what's the phenomena about this but this enlightened me to this world and maybe perhaps what kind of person and what kind of excitement one gets i guess holding a cat that i would never i would be too afraid to because i wouldn't want to get my arm ripped off you know so i you know but i but i do think i mean i i guess my thing is that this blurs the lines of it's okay that it blurs the lines of a documentary. It's entertainment. It's meant to be entertainment. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, reality television anyway. And I think there's a lot to be learned, like sociolo sociologically, about these kinds of shows on of real people. Of course they're sensational. Of course they're hamming it up for the camera. And of course they're not, like, there's some ethical issues in making films and exposing people and asking, I mean, for example, one of the, husbands of Joe Exotic was told that he had to take his shirt off and, you know, and, and supposedly not, you know, he had teeth, but he was not allowed to be seen with teeth. And so we were exposing them in a certain way and light that we were, we were sensationalizing the story even more, you know, to emphasize like the fact that Joe and his, his, you know, his camaraderie is meth heads and, and whatnot. I, you know, I, I think it's okay sometimes if something's entertaining and not necessarily completely in the lines of a documentary true crime it's you know like errol morris film but that's just me i guess like one thing i would have liked to see them kind of maybe go into at some point in one of the episodes is just like the the fix like the solution so because i think mm -hmm. that that's part of why we maybe come away from it and just think like or some some of us have moments where we think this and some of us just think this entirely that like well that's all just kind of entertainment and exploitation and there's no real kind of solution because there's nothing that we can maybe engage with in terms of like well what how do you fix that massive um uh, uh um gap in the numbers between the animals that exist in the wild and the animals that exist in in captivity and with those animals in captivity now you know, it's not as simple as like, oh, well, we'll just, you know, take them out of captivity. Like, we'll, we'll, because the, the, the cycle has been created and it needs to, to sort of be stopped. And I would, I would have been interested personally from just a, um, a personal point of view in terms of learning more about the issue and like what, um, what steps there are to kind of get out of this. And because I don't, because I don't, personally, I don't feel that Carol Baskin 
is a solution and I know that people really really hate her I don't I don't think I kind of hate her in quite the same sort of way that I'm <laughs> the, the the um a lot of the internet <laughs> maybe does right now um and I have you know read into her her parks and the animals do actually have uh I think all of them or most of them have the right amount of roaming space for an animal in captivity which is still not great um but she herself her and Joe started from philosophically opposite points where he kind of went into it on conservation and she went into it in breeding and they sort of swap places but I feel like they're still both as as their, their self-interest is very much at the center of it no matter what um so I think that that could have done something to maybe sort of alleviate some of the the kind of like ethical gripes that people have against the series um to just explore what actual solutions there are and what you know maybe some people who are actually doing like real good because uh, like Peter's not even that like you know we we've all known for, for decades that Peter's a you know corrupt and uh, awful organization as well um but yeah yes I think the closest that the show sort of um, gets to uh, in terms of like proposing a solution is just government regulation which is something that you know Carol Baskin supports and that she's probably the major activist for um, which I'm sure that you know anybody who voted for Joe Exotic um, <laughs> probably would disagree with but it's about as you know, it's about as close as you can go to, you know, sort of stopping this industry in its tracks while still protecting the animals that are already held in captivity and were probably born in captivity and probably could not adapt to um, a life in the wild. Uh, so in that respect, I do think it at least offers that. But I think you're right in the sense that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't talk about it in great deal. And I think, like, the... Like, the way Carol Baskin is portrayed, I think, sort of attests to the fact that, like, the way you film a certain event or person or whatever is going to probably affect the viewer's feelings, you know, towards that person much more than anything that they're actually doing wrong. In the sense that, again, Carol Baskin is, like, you know, one of the main activists behind, like, the only sort of viable... Uh, solution to this which is just you know regulate the market in that respect yes i agree and i think there's ultimately like um an issue here on on regulation but the question is whether or not these sanctuaries i suppose in her case are you know any any better i mean certainly it's better that she she wants regulation and she's pushing for that but you know i think a little bit of what's what's coming out is is apart from the obvious possible killing of her husband um which is quite shocking i think that not done and don't, don't worry you can all breathe easily i'm not going to go on at length about it as much as i as much as i kind of want to but to me though that for me that that kind of gets to the bottom of why i didn't find it working for me there, there it, it raises a quite a lot of things including the likes of carol baskin's inverted commas sanctuaries right are they actually any better 
I don't think it really answers that. And, and not only does it not answer, I don't think it's really got much interest in that. I think it questions it, actually. I think that's exactly what it does. But No, but that's the thing. I think it, it, it does question it, but it questions it in the context of this ridiculous personal feud between the two of them. And that's the dr- the backdrop. And that that's my whole thing with it. Everything, everything in this is, is filtered through Joe Exotic and this quite frankly reprehensible character i mean like the, the you know the guy you know and apparently he's a massive racist and that was cut out in the series and things like that so that that to me almost kind of gets to the heart of why it, i i didn't feel good watching it to be honest um as i say i i accept i am very much in the minority on this um both at large and i think and, and i think here as well but it, to me, it's just the focus of this is all wrong, and I and I do think they could have maintained a little of the whole, um, you know, sensationalist character stuff whilst being a little bit more substantive. But so, if you have a personal enter- enjoyment of uh, Florida Kitsch, Florida Oklahoma Kitsch, and and uh, tw- and Twin Peaks likes characters, or you're like Jim who uh, really really detests this with every bone in his body. Um, it's up to you. It's on Netflix, and um, I'm sure you'll hear about it again. The next film we're going to review is Mafi. Betty, why don't you tell us a little bit about that film? Okay, so Mafi is a South African film uh, directed by Oliver Hermanus, and it's based on a novel by Andre Carl van der Merwe. Uh, it's set in 1981 during the South African border wars, um, and it is about the time, the life and times of Nick, uh, who is a gay teenager who has just been conscripted uh, into the South African Defense Force. The film mostly follows uh, his experience of being in the military, not just as a gay man, but as a young boy in general. And it mainly focuses on the militarization of these young men and the way that Uh, This militarization stifles them as people in general, but especially as a man who is, you know, going to be inherently discriminated against um, as, as as a homosexual. Which is also reflected in the title of the film, which is a uh, Afrikaans slur uh, that's pejorative towards gay men. Yeah, and I've, I've got to say I. On that note, I, I think I know far more Afrikaans uh, curse words than I'm really comfortable knowing after watching this film. Um, in particular, there's one which is used repeatedly, uh, pimpled, see you next Tuesday. Um, and, and I know that because it's used so repeatedly and it kind of speaks to how brutal this film is. Um, so it follows uh, Nick as part of, I think it was like the two years mandatory um military service as you know part of the the south african army around the time they were uh, having issues with the soviet-backed angola on their border and i wouldn't say i like this film because that would be very much the wrong way to talk about it i i personally was very impressed by it um it's got a lot going for it which is extremely effective um chiefly amongst it i think the look um it's a very up close and personal look 
to the film. Um, it's usually characterized by handheld close-ups, um, and it's remarkably sharp-looking. In particular, also does a very good job of putting you there in kind of time and place through the, the cinematography, which I think is really extremely effective. It's kind of got this sun-bleached look to it almost. And the music as well, uh, I found really, really quite remarkable. Um, in some ways, it actually reminded me of something we reviewed on the show recently. Uh, it actually reminded me of Little Joe in some ways. Not in, in, not entirely, because that kind of kabuki style of that um, was really a part. But it, 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 it ended up with that same sort of effect of you know unsettling you, and it sounds a bit atonal. And... Uh, you know, knocking you, knocking you off balance. So, I think it's a very effective film. Um, it's a, quite an uncomfortable film to watch. Um, kind of all these, basically these different intersecting bigotries. Really, um, you know, we open with an extremely unpleasant scene quite early on of uh, a bunch of white soldiers uh, basically abusing and in a rather disgusting way assaulting a, a black man at a train station, and then of course. After that, it starts to focus a little bit more on kind of the the toxic masculinity and the homophobia, which was uh, which is rife in the setting that Nick, uh, this young man, finds himself in. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know what I, I don't know what you thought overall, Betty. But I I personally find it extremely extremely effective, extremely affecting, and I think the the performances were pretty good as well. I think it it got across what it wanted to. Uh, it's not comfortable to watch. Um... Yeah, I quite like the film overall, and a lot of it has to do with the same uh, reasons that you mentioned, and especially with the cinematography itself. I thought every shot was very thoughtfully composed, and what I found interesting as well was that it doesn't use um, a strictly speaking widescreen aspect ratio, it uses the academy ratio, which is a bit more square. Um, and I read that the director of photography, uh, Jamie D. Ramsey, use this, like not just the aspect ratio, but the feel of the film in general, uh, was meant to em emulate the war photography that he saw of this period because he found the way that this, um, that these wars were um, documented to be very impactful. And I think he succeeded in that quite, like, he, I feel like he succeeded in that overall. Um, there's, ver ver there are very few uh, decisions that, were made in terms of uh, composition and in terms of um, and in terms of uh, the coloring of the film that felt superfluous. I felt like everything was uh, very motivated and very very carefully done. So in terms of um, storyline itself, uh, one thing I thought that which was interesting. So when I went in to watch this, um, I was expecting a film that was. Uh, primarily centered around the difficulties of being, you know, a gay man in the military. But I feel like that was only one of the many aspects of this kind of life and, you know, spending a good chunk of your formative years in this kind of environment, um, which usually involves difficulties of all kinds, not just ones that, you know, relate to uh, you growing up, uh, you growing into your sexuality and growing into your romantic life, um, which is in a way sort of 
something that many LGBT people are robbed of. Um, and you know, that becomes, that's extra true for any man, um, you know, in this kind of setting. I, d I don't think that takes a backseat by any means, but it does become just one of the many um, issues that Nick faces amongst them, you know, being a 19 year old, being a teenager, um, you know, fighting a war that he's not even sure is justified or that he's even on the right side of. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about um, the war photography in particular, because it actually the aspect ratio and just the, the way the shots are framed and everything, it really it really does evoke that quite strongly. What's what's interesting though is it, the, the film is definitely not um, it's definitely not above kind of poking at and um, subverting some of these kind of military homoerotic tropes that occasionally pop up in film. And the one I'm thinking of, there, there's pointedly without giving anything away, there is there's a topless volleyball scene, which of course is something which you know Top Gun is famous for for having. But without giving anything away, that scene, which up to that point is, you know, it's reason as this film goes, it's reasonably uh, lighthearted. It is then absolutely brutally undercut um, in like very swift fashion. So it is a very unflinching film in that regard, and I think it's it's taking aim at some of these maybe slightly more sanitized views of how these things have. Uh, gone down in the past and i think much of it comes down to how well um the nick character is portrayed uh, and i think the the person who plays it was name is kai luke broomer and i think he does an absolutely superb job and he has these kind of moments with other soldiers who are also kind of hiding themselves basically or hiding their real selves in this very testing uh, bigoted environment and it it does it superbly. I think it I think it is extremely extremely effective. And it, there's a lot going on. I think the um the experience of gay men in the South African military that's that's obviously the primary thing. Uh, and I think given that we're dealing with the apartheid regime, I think some people would probably be a little disappointed that that seems to the race the the overtly racist aspects of that take a back seat and it seems to focus more on the effect that it has uh just generally like the generally um toxic effect of it so i could see people maybe thinking that's been overlooked but i think that's just the nature of this particularly sort of personal angle to the story that is being told yeah, I think, you know, if you could, like, in terms of uh, the social impact of the film, I think the one thing anybody could hold against it is that it's sort of trying to humanize uh, the white soldiers in the South African Defense Force. But, you know, ultimately, these experiences are fundamentally human. And if I had to compare it to any other, um, you know, any other war that experiences a lot of um, sort of that is often seen in various cultural products. I'd, mo I'd probably compare it most to Vietnam um, and the, you know, you know, American soldiers in Vietnam and the difficulties that they face um, in terms of being, you know, part of what will in history be remembered as a very unpopular war in, in any case. 
you know, I, I think I think it does ultimately depict depict these things quite elegantly in the sense that it's a pretty obvious and explicit criticism of uh, mil of military of the militarization of society and the you know and the ideological effects of it, um, it which might not be depicted uh, strictly in terms of race relations, but it is something that features in the film quite prominently in other ways, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, I must admit, the, the thing that struck me about it the most initially was the the visuals. Um, I think it does, it does a very good job of drawing you into that. You know, all, all the stuff that you've spoken about, it does a very good job of drawing you into that in particular there's there's a bunch of shots um following uh, a train transporting these guys to the kind of the, the 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 camp which has basically got a bit of a full metal jacket vibe to it um you know complete with abusive sergeants and the whole shebang but a lot of the shots of the train making its way to there are really quite stunning actually and there's a couple of different ones there's ones that are kind of you know slightly side on tracking from above there are others where it comes from below the camera and then uh, disappears kind of into the the horizon of the shot and it really looks superb it is it is probably like they're kind of like entering hell really and it is scored as such as well and that's where the the music i was talking about earlier comes into it it really does it really does a fantastic job of setting that tone and then after that it goes on to explore these kind of different issues and the personal relationships and how these men both how some of these men express themselves in a way that is condoned and then the other way in which they need to hide the ways they can express themselves in and it does a fantastic job of setting that up. And overall, I've got to say, I was really, really pretty impressed. I'm pretty, I'm a little bit ambivalent uh, about the soundtrack, just in the sense that, like, the soundtrack itself is very good. But I think the only thing I would hold against the film is that it tends to, um, like, the film tends to, at times, be a little bit put aside um, for these, like, slightly longer soundtracky uh, digressions, which sometimes, for me, really helped set the mood and create, um, you know, create a setting and an atmosphere for the film, but other times felt just a little bit distracting in the sense of, like, you know, you'll have scenes that sort of overlap and it feels like, you know, they're not really sure whether they want to dedicate the, you know, more contemplative musical bit to this scene or another scene. So they do both. Um, and sometimes I felt like they could drag on a little bit, but ultimately, like, you know, it is pretty obvious what it's trying to do, if nothing else, and that's um, create a more overall um, aesthetic experience of whatever scene is you know, trying to um, trying to be depicted in this way, which, you know, from the brawls in... Um, so the brawls between the, the boys, you know, paired with very <laughs> dramatic classical music uh, to, you know, Nick swimming in a pool and stuff like that. Okay, so you can see Mafi on Curzon Home Cinema on the 24th of April. So be sure to check it out. Okay, the next film we're going to review is Emma. Carice, tell me a little bit about that film. 
yeah, so um, the very simple logline for uh, Pablo Lorraine's Emma would be a couple dealing with the aftermath of a decision to give up their adoptive son, Polo. Uh, however, Emma's husband, Gaston, who's played by Gael Garcia Bernal, and the character of Polo, who is very much um, uh, just spoken about and not really seen for a lot of the film, very rapidly drift into the background as uh, Mariana Di Girolamo's breakout performance as Emma, uh, with a shock of slick back bleach white hair and luminescent clothing, uh, charges into the centre of the story. For me, this is very much a story about the character of Emma, as the title of the film would probably uh, lead one to believe. Um, so Emma's a reggaeton dancer, uh, and there are points in the film where this is uh, shown as a sign of um, uh, an issue between Emma and her husband. There's a, a sort of battle between old and new here, I think. Um, and this, uh, her um, both her, her job as a dancer very much kind of feeds into the whole aesthetic of the film. The film's um, sort of visual style is very... Um, uh, colourful, it's set on a Chilean harbour city, Valparaiso, um, which itself is full of um, uh, pastel, bright apartment blocks, um, and Emma's entire wardrobe, as well as that of uh, her girlfriends that she spends most of the film sort of followed by an, an entourage, uh, they all dress in incredibly vibrant, uh, modern, youth, uh, youthful clothing. Um, and also the uh, soundtrack to the film is done by Chilean-American music composer Nicholas Jar, who's quite well known for his uh, electronic music EPs from probably early 2000s. Um, so the film itself is sort of a dance film, it's got uh, a lot of energy, it's got a really cool soundtrack, but then there is this thread of a, a kind of a thriller domestic drama running through uh, that really only gets dealt with and, and revealed towards the very latter uh, scenes of the film. Uh, what did what did you think of it, Amanda? Um, I absolutely, well, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a sad and somewhat dark story, but in terms of the look and feel and the emotions that um, I got from it, I, I, really, I really was captivated by it. I, um, I particularly really liked um, the main performances of the two two characters um and i also really loved the 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 lighting and the look and feel um it almost felt like like james terrell had you know created this light art like on the city you know of these scenes and some of like there's a montage of like um you know a sex scene where she ends up with many of her partners and it was all in this blue light and and um, I just thought it was really well done. I also I also think when we were talking about uh, a couple films this week about the intimacy and isolation of the like of the family unit, and I felt like that was really handled exceptionally well. Like you kind of felt the loneliness within this couple a lot of times, and they're they're just by the way that it was filmed and and the silence around that, or you know, like it was it was really beautiful. But I also particularly loved. The dance scenes, um, I think they kind of pulled you out and they almost felt like you were in a music video, but in a, in a way that wasn't, wasn't stunted. It didn't stunt the story. It progressed it. And I thought, I thought it was super well done. I, the only other film I've ever seen, um, 
that he's directed as Jackie, and I didn't enjoy that film as much as this one, so I was delightfully quite surprised and really enjoyed it. And we wanted to see some of his other stuff that he did before. Yeah, I was waiting. To, I was wanting to see what Amanda made of it because I, I, I knew that you, you disliked Jackie. That I thought you actually <laughs> disliked it really intensely. It wasn't just you didn't enjoy it. I thought you hated it. Like, oh, I don't. You, you I don't used like... the phrase "I hated that film." <laughs> yeah, I didn't like it at all, and it's particularly because I have a bias against Natalie Portman, and I really love watching Natalie Portman films because I expect to dislike them. Um, but I particularly didn't like Jackie and. There are other films she's done that I, I think are, are fine, but um, I just didn't think it was uh, very well done. I, I, I can't, I'd have to go back and watch why I really didn't like it. I just remember. I, I remember going to Alamo Draft House as well to see it the first time I've ever been there. I'm very just nostalgic right now about the fact I can't go to the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. It's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, um, the dance sequences and like it. it, it in a good way taking you you out of it a bit because i actually agree and i think it works very well with the story because it's almost dealing like most of the time throughout the story like basically the, the emma character is dealing with it's it's really a form of grief right it's the, the, the like her the, the, she feels like she's uh in some way failed uh polo this kid and it's causing all sorts of ructions with her and uh her husband uh, Gaston I think uh, Gal Garcia Bernal's character and it's basically all the different ways in which she's really acting out I suppose or expressing herself and kind of like the only way she can find to deal with that so the fact that the dance sequences actually do kind of take out the story is almost it really serves to emphasize that because that's her main mode of expression that's how she kind of like separates herself from that and it's only when you get later into the film um basically that kind of the veil drops and you actually begin to see sort of like a more direct dealing with it i was also struck by the look of the film i thought the the use of um the use of color in this i thought was absolutely fantastic um in particular so there there are a lot of sex scenes in this film um and they are color coded um according to kind of like what sort of emotion or whatever what the Emma character is experiencing at the time, and I think it it really is, it really is quite something. It would be very easy to look at it on the surface and think that it's maybe more style over substance, but I don't think it is. I, I think it is actually pretty, pretty good visual storytelling. Um, you know, and using the idea of uh, the colors of the scenes and the color grading to convey emotion and tone which is really the the bedrock of this story. I mean, that's what it all largely resides in. And it, it does that in a variety of different visual ways. There's the dance sequences, there's the uh, the way in which the Gaston and Emma are shot, there's the, the colours that we've spoken about. Um, and I've got to say, I was, I was... I'm doing pretty well with the films that we're reviewing for this show because I was pretty impressed with it. I was... I did enjoy it. I also, I also quite like there's an there's an argument scene where Gaston and are arguing, which features Gal Gal Garcia Bernal rolling R's like an absolute champion, uh, <laughs> which I, I I enjoyed. It's a slightly more frivolous one, but yeah, I I enjoyed the film. I thought I thought it set out to do everything it wanted to really pretty well. I think. I thought the other thing that was quite interesting, and we did we talked about this with the assistant, which we reviewed last time, was that you you know you can see and there's this come like you said it's it's really about grief and but at the same time you don't actually meet the the child very often 
um, or, or it's only near the end that you kind of get to see her um, being with the with with the child that she had given up. Um, so I thought I thought it was it was interesting that that character was somewhat removed from most of the story or only seen kind of at afar. Yeah, and I think in terms of the the way that he decides to structure the narrative, that you've got them very much dealing with the aftermath, but it feels like he's still sort of there. So there's like these occasional cutaway scenes where you see the child in a setting with other people and it doesn't tell you this, you know, you you don't hear anyone say his name to him. You can only assume that this is the child that has caused this massive rupture in their lives and in their relationship. Um, But you don't, the, the, the way in which the, they talk about him and the way in which they're still having these conversations with their family about him, it feels really like it, it's still very like raw, it's still very much there, like the the scene where they open the freezer and just is one of the um, uh, crimes that they've attributed to this young boy as to why they've decided to give him up. It, it feels like he's still, the impact of him is still sort of rippling through their lives, like it's not it's almost it's not they're not even past the point of of the impact and then definitely not in that stage of of like proper mourning yet um and and i guess like there's probably part of me and i, I don't necessarily know whether a value judgment is needed but it does feel at the end that this child is not necessarily going to be in in good care with these two people i think they um the they sort of very deliberately create the the world of both um, Emma and uh, Gaston as you know they're they're very tempestuous, uh, very fiery, very um, uh, clashing individuals, and their whole world like the, the I think part of the the aesthetic that he creates their whole world is incredibly um fraught it's fiery there's fire just constantly throughout it it doesn't feel like a healthy world for a child so you've kind of got these two things where you've got a couple who are struggling with a child that showed signs of kind of behavioral issues but it, the the parents themselves are definitely kind of showing similar behavioral issues so yeah when when, when the film opens with emma and kind of like welders get up basically <laughs> having flamethrower to set a traffic lights i think you, you, you're pretty clued into the fact that she's not going to be you know <laughs> not going to be kind of like a nice stable level <laughs> you know everything's calm <laughs> yeah but and, and i guess i sort of like that i like that kind of um subverting of the maternal cat uh, maternal figure um because if she very much is like she is clearly as you say amanda she is clearly very much mourning the loss of this child she's it's she's on this kind of um this mission to kind of fix what she maybe thinks is a wrong decision she very quickly reacts negatively to anyone um and it's gaston primarily he does this uh saying that she's a bad mother or or kind of poking at this this idea that she was she was a bad mother and you through some of the lines in the films you 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 know that the that her and and polo clearly had a very close and and nurturing relationship um uh but she is also wild and crazy and she's you know she's sleeping around and she's going to parties and she's 
dancing through the city and and it's she's there's a real um vibrancy to her as well as having a kind of maternal side which i think is quite nice yeah, I mean, not to give anything away, but that scene, um, there's a there's a scene when I feel like the two families meet and I've just, it was so well done, but so uncomfortable um, yeah. and amazing what one person can can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, and her eyes, she, she communicates um, so much through her eyes, the uh, Mariana who plays Emma, she just you know you can see who she's looking at and you can think you can you know everything that's going on inside her head in terms of like this scenario that she has constructed yeah. um really interesting i think it's i think it's worth a watch and like i said i i'm i'm interested in seeing some of his other work now um i'm i i think it looks great it's well acted and it's a a, a beautiful film if a bit dark and unsettling what are the other films he's done? Because there's Jackie, and then I think there's Neruda. Yeah, he did a film called No that also has uh, Gael Garcia Bernal in, I believe. Ah, okay. um, and a film called The the Club, I want to say, but I might be wrong. Uh, but I think Jackie's his only full English language film, and is for me also the only other film of his that I've seen. Um, and I think just so starkly different. I think feel like Jackie's very like because of the setting that it's in it's so it's really cold and it's really kind of stoic i guess whereas there's mm-hmm. um a like you know larger than life kind of vibrancy to emma that just that dragged me yeah. right in and obviously i mentioned nicholas jar earlier he's he's one of my favorite music composers i've always been uh, a great fan of him um and i think this film similarly to um uh, Victoria that came out a couple of years ago that was soundtrack by Nils Fram about sort of Berlin club scene um, but also has like a, a drama thriller kind of narrative to it I think it sort of fits in that kind of thing where if someone's a fan of the music and a fan of dance and a fan of you know watches music videos this is totally a film that would work for them um, and also there's like a really kind of juicy thriller drama um, narrative to kind of get stuck into as well It's interesting that um so like you could say the only the only other film of his i've seen is jackie and it it's quite interesting it makes quite a good comparison with that because it's like you said like jackie's all about the kind of the stoicism and almost kind of like swallowing your your grief whereas this is i mean it's basically the complete opposite it's all right out there the emotions are raw they're out on the table they are you know done in saturated lights of color and there's flamethrowers and there's arguments and you know i mean like the two characters emma and gasso i mean they torture each other basically i mean you know they have a couple where you know they really really go for jugular with each other over these like little things about about the kids so it is interesting that those are the only two films of his that i and you have seen because it's there's some overlap in terms of what it's trying to deal with but it's just it's expressed so very differently it's it's really quite a contrast i think it maybe speaks to his versatility as a as a director and also i mean also the performances in the film but yeah yeah i'm definitely looking forward to seeing some more of his films um he's uh he's clearly got a good uh a good visual eye great so you can watch emma on um movie starting the 2nd of May and as you hear we really like it so we hope you check it out 
So the final film or series, final film that we're reviewing is Vivarium. Uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about uh, that film. So this is a film directed by Lorcan Finnegan, who, as you said at the top of the show, we've got an interview with him after this, uh, talking a little bit about the film. And it follows a couple, uh, Tom, played by Jesse Eisenberg, and Gemma, played by Imogen Poots. And she's a teacher, he's a, I don't quite gather what he was, a tree surgeon, gardener, and they are looking at buying a home together. So they stumble into this uh, estate agent and speak to uh, a very creepy, weird estate agent uh, played by Jonathan Aris. And he takes them to the show home on a nearby estate in amongst this kind of like ridiculous uh, row of pastel green houses that all look absolutely identical. While he's showing them around the home, he disappears. Uh, the estate agent and Tom and Gemma are left there and they quickly find that they cannot leave the estate. Whenever they try to drive, they end up driving around in circles and end up back at the same number nine house that they were shown around. And basically, they end up stuck there. Uh, shortly after, they are delivered a small baby, and they are told, raise the child and be released. So they then proceed to try and go about that. The child grows at an unnatural rate. It's very clearly not human, and I'm sure we'll talk about the ways in which that is conveyed, and certainly I, I spoke about it with Lorcan in, in the interview. And basically, it then follows that uh, story in this kind of like hellscape that they are they are stuck in. Um, so that's really what it is. One, largely one location for the whole time. Uh, the two lead actors and then the the child is played by a, a younger a younger child, and then an older an older guy comes in towards the towards the end of the film. So um, you'll get some of my feelings about it in the interview. So I suppose we'll start off with uh, what you thought, of it, Amanda. Well, um, I think just as our, our Tiger King debate, we we. We, we spar here and there, but I, I, I do always am amused of you finding films um, for me to watch that are so dystopian in my, uh, my idea. And uh, by when I'm watching this sort of cursing your name just a little bit, um, <laughs> this film was um, incredibly timely, to be honest. Uh, I think looking at this film now, um, this idea of isolation um, is so like, a major theme and I, again the location while it was it's quite beautiful it's really um the way that it was shot and whatnot um was one of the most dystopian landscapes of a film I've, I've seen in a while and was somewhere I would I, I never want to go back um you know uh, it's it's a it's certainly I feel like a story about you know a core similar to what we were talking about with Emma like core about um a core relationship and a core family unit and the feelings of being um, a mother, a father, um, feeling connected to, you know, your child or not connected to your child, feeling guilt or, or all those kinds of things. So I, I think it does that really well. I think it's very psychological and it's, and it's quite, it's quite scary. Um, but um, yeah, overall I thought it was, it, it, it was a well done film. Um, you know, so I, I was I was relatively happy with it from a filmic perspective. Um, I'm a big fan of the specials, so I like the uh, the soundtrack. But um, very scary, very dystopian, and uh, probably won't watch it a second time. 
Yeah, I think um, in my defense on the uh, the choice, <laughs> I think it's it's funny like the different and this is something that I spoke about um, with the director. It's it's quite funny how you get different things out of it on different viewings, right? So the the first time I saw this, it was at Glasgow Film Festival, and I think it was right at the end of February, maybe the very start of March. So it was. It was about the time that coronavirus started to be in the news, but, you know, we hadn't accelerated into lockdown or, you know, any shops being shut or anything like that. And when I watched it the first time, it, it comes across very much as this kind of like this warped idea of, um, you know, the commonly accepted life. You know, you, you find someone to settle down with, you buy a house with them, you have a child, and it's this weird, disturbing, warped, like unreality that this is all kind of refracted through and that's that's what i picked up largely on the the first go around the second go around because i did what i watched it again in preparation for for the interview when you're watching it in lockdown it is odd how kind of like prescient it seems in terms of the way that you know these things affect you because of course the, the, these two they can't go anywhere um when they try to leave the kind of in this weird kind of like twilight zony type way end up exactly back at the house and the scene that they're there that stuck out to me was when their car that they've taken there there's a scene where they find that they can get music out of it because the car radio actually still works and they just start dancing to it and it, it was a bit of a bizarre thing to watch because then this kind of like you know this trying to find entertainment in your um Kind of like very limited surroundings that kind of jumped out to me more the the second time around so in terms of that it's interesting i i was also very taken with the look of the film i think uh, and particularly when you hear about kind of like the trials that were gone through to get that look it's it's quite something the thing that mainly stands out to me is actually the the way in, in which they conveyed that this child is not human right and it's the way he talks, and the way it's actually done is Jonathan Addis, who plays the weird, creepy estate agent at the start, he is dubbed over the top of the actual voice of the child. And I thought it was a really interesting technique, because it creates this kind of, like, audio version of the Uncanny Valley effect. Like, you, like it's synced almost to perfection, right? So it, it looks right, but you just know it isn't. Um... So getting across the sort of the alien nature of this child, I thought was was really pretty impressive. It's not; it's a very ambiguous film. Uh, it doesn't really give a lot away. It leaves a lot open to interpretation, which I think is kind of spoken to by the fact that you know, like obviously you've got that out of it on this viewing because of when you watched it, and I've kind of got different things out of it. You know, the two times that I've seen it. Um, I think it sets out everything it achieves, though. I think it's got the it's got that weird dystopian satire going on. It's very disturbing. I think the the performances are great. Um, I'm very impressed with it. Right, and I agree with the child. I sort of sometimes, which is interesting, like sometimes you felt like you looked at the child and 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 it was a natural sort of was behaving like a natural kid and then other times was so alien and so scary um which perhaps again is i mean again you say it's very ambiguous i agree there's a lot of questions i had um throughout the film like you know what are what is the purpose of these 
you know, people under the stairs or something that are controlling this world? And, and why is there, you know, why are they dragging multiple obvious people into these, these isolated worlds? Um, you know, uh, the, the other thing I was wondering is how did, how did he not roll, run out of cigarettes or, or whatnot? <laughs> like, they're just like really weird questions that I just didn't, didn't, you know, just, I mean, they're left unanswered. Um, one thing I thought was quite amusing, though, is given this COVID-19 thing, uh, was that they couldn't taste their food as well, which is just, unca- again, uncanny that um, this director, which you'll get into probably in your interview, um, was almost, you know, creating the scene that many families, I mean, I'm not in a fam family situation right now maybe are going through right now in terms of like being stuck in that kind of unit and 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 only and kind of needing to learn a little bit more about themselves like I felt like there was this metaphor of the Jesse Eisenberg character deep you know deeping like digging into the ground to try to get away and 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 whatnot from the from the family but as he got down there, he discovered more about his own situation, and he discovered like his his life and his future, and um, it's 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 ominous. It certainly is. So it doesn't make you feel good when you're stuck in a similar situation, albeit slightly yeah, better there, looking. Yeah, there are there are bits that are like in particular like Jesse Eisenberg's character like just digging a big hole for what is essentially no reason, like just to feel like he's doing something. I, yeah. I kept I kept thinking about like the the amounts of like kind of like you know going over DIY projects that people have taken up since the, the lockdown. So uh, it, it's quite like it's been a funny experience rewatching it because it is just quite funny how like quite how much the um, the context in which a film comes out affects the way that people interpret it. Um, and it, it's not it's not the it's not the first film we've spoken about on the show where you've had that because another film which had a very similar um reception was bait uh mark jenkins film which um you know won i, I think it, i think it perhaps won the first time director battle actually certainly it won a lot of awards and you know it did very well in the festival circuit and his film really got interpreted through a brexit lens because of when it came out it came out around about the time all the extension he put like filler uh just a filler a radio broadcast in the background talking about brexit and it suddenly became this brexit film and in some ways this film looks like it's going to go the same way there's a lot going on in the film and i think there's plenty to get out of it but it's now become the lockdown film um so it's just, it's just interesting the way that the, the context in which you watch a film like affects what you take from it as you watch it yeah, and I mean, I imagine that, um, you know, I think on our blog, actually, uh, when a guest writer, Federica, had uh, written about certain films about isolation that kind of have a positive slant or take it in a different way than one, one would think. Um, but I just, I think it's, we're hitting a time now where this will be part of the way we look at films from the past, but they'll also be the way that it will it will recreate um, you know, the new screenplays of tomorrow and how we're going to look at things differently. And it's, it's incredible. So it's incredible that this was almost, um, you know, ahead of its time, um, because I, I sort of foresee films like this coming out um, afterwards in a couple of years, you know. So Jim, you sat down with uh, Lorcan Finnegan, um, sat down remotely. <laughs> um, so 
uh, to talk about the film, correct? Yeah, so uh, so he's based in Dublin at the moment. Uh, he's on lockdown as well, of course. Um, so I spoke to him about the film, and we spoke about quite a lot of the things that we've, we've just mentioned, kind of like how the reception to it has changed, um, and then a lot more about how they create the look of it, because there were actually quite a lot of, there were quite a lot of difficulties and ingenuity needed in terms of how they actually um how do you actually manage that so i started off by just asking how he's getting on lockdown and then uh, began speaking about where the idea for the film came from okay so uh larkin uh director of avarium thank you for speaking to me today how is lockdown life in dublin uh, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, lockdown life is uh, is okay. The weather is good. Um, I mean, I mostly work from home anyway, and talk to people that I'm working with on Skype and Zoom and all that. So it's not <clears throat> totally uh, unusual, but it is pretty weird not being able to kind of see anybody. And on that, on on the 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 idea of not seeing anybody, obviously now. The, the film uh, Vivarium, it's it's coming out at a slightly odd time because obviously it, it premiered at uh, Cannes last year. So you've kind of got this whole, and I saw it at Glasgow Film Festival in February, like, or it might even be in early March, the showing I saw. March, yeah. Right before all this stuff um, kicked off, um, or at least when it kicked off in the UK and Ireland, I'm sure to other places were aware of it by then. How odd has that been for you to get the kind of the full audience experience for almost the best part of a year and then basically have the theatrical release just kind of the rug pulled out from under you right at the end, basically? Yeah, it was um, obviously a sickener, yeah, um, that it didn't get the theatrical release that we planned. I mean, it actually did come out in France. France had a, a window of two weeks before everybody else. Um, the distributor there just managed to to organize that somehow. But um, yeah, so it came out in France, and I went over for the premiere, um, and yeah, it came out on a Wednesday, and then Thursday the the French president sort of announced that schools were closing down, and then like on Friday the cinemas were closed, and that was that was the end of it. Um, but it did pretty well <laughs> for like a day. But um, yeah, I mean. Ultimately, yeah, it's just the way things went. And it's weirdly then became kind of this lockdown, ultimate lockdown movie. All these people started, started labeling it as, uh, you know, oddly prescient. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not the worst though. I mean, like there's, there's people who would have been premiering their films at, um, at festivals, you know, um, Cypress West suddenly cancelled and I knew people who were going to show their film for the first time and they're excited, they got in and um, and then obviously Cannes isn't happening now and um, yeah, so like we we're lucky really, we had a great festival run and then um, it was going to be a day and date release in the UK anyway no. and the US so <clears throat> although it was doing theatrical it was also going to be going out on VOD um, at the same time so. I was wondering if it's made you think a little about how, how much the historical context in which a film comes out plays mm. a role in how an audience engages with it because now, now obviously when you're when you're coming up with ideas and stuff they, they informs that process as well but 
I rewatched the film recently because I knew I was going to be uh, speaking to you about it, and it's just it's quite funny to me at least how I engage with different aspects of it upon watching it a second time. So I mean, the first time there's all the things to do with um you know the ideas of motherhood and social contract and kind of you're getting locked into this kind of suburban anonescape almost but then when i was watching it the second time it was the the idea that they can't literally can't go anywhere or particularly do anything which really registered with me and the the bit that really stuck out to me is when they're dancing to uh some decker and the aces in front of the car when they suddenly realize that the the car radio uh, still works. So I was wondering if, because of course now you've had that, you've had that long period for audiences to engage it in what was previously normal, I suppose. And now yeah. I was wondering if you've, is that something you've found yourself and when you've been speaking to people about it or when you've reflected on it? Yeah, well, I didn't, like nobody knew that me and Garrett were precogs before now. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we share a bath and we have wires coming out of our heads. Now, um, it was, I mean, I'll never get to experience it like um, like that. You know, the way like, I'll never even get to experience like a normal audience member pre-COVID um, because you're inside it, making it, so you never really get to kind of um, experience it as a as an audience member anyway. But now... Yeah, I haven't, I haven't actually watched it. It's, I mean, I know the film pretty well, obviously, but I haven't watched it since all of this. But I have seen, like, and I've done a bunch of interviews um, for the US asking about this sort of lockdown thing and how it, it seems as if it was designed exactly for a kind of, like, a, a nightmare version of um, of the social contract mixed with... with um, mixed with COVID-19 and like, you know, there's all sorts of weird things then, you know, once it started, um, once we became aware of of all of the symptoms and all of the kind of the restrictions that were going to be put into place and everything, you start seeing all these weird parallels in the film, you know, with them, um, one, they're, they're stuck in the house with this annoying child who's driving them mad, you know, the male, the protagonist starts to do make two gardening projects, which I think a lot of people are doing. And, um, and then, you know, he, he gets a mysterious illness that um, he is slightly unexplained um, in the film anyway. And um, the boxes arrive with, with supplies, which, you know, there's just so many weird parallels. Um, but I guess in, in some sense, like I've always thought that, um, films like this seem as if um you know they're part of a collective unconscious anyway that like when you're reacting to what's going on socio-politically and you're kind of working on a on a project about that in a slightly abstracted way um some of those concerns and ideas i don't know it all kind of gets swept up and turns into a film and Maybe in some way it is a weird uh, precognitive thing or something. I don't know. Strange though. Um, yeah. 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 And in particular, yeah. The, um, the when Tom Jesse Eisenberg's character starts digging a random hole in the garden, I did come. It did. It did bring to mind that story about how DIY injuries have gone up in the past month. <laughs> right? Have they? Yeah. Yeah. I, I read that story recently. It was something like. Um, I they would I mean so not directly but it was like eye injuries related to kind of doing work around the house have like increased by a factor of three in 
England or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because everybody's at home, like, drilling holes in their wall or something. (laughs) Yeah, trying not to go mad, yeah. I mean, we did actually have a a scene in the film that we cut, but it was um, the boy asking Tom, why is he digging? And I think he said, uh, because everyone needs a job. It's like, why do people need jobs? And he said, because if they didn't, they'd go crazy. Um, (laughs) Well. (laughs) Something along those lines. Um. So I would moving on to kind of more the the content of the film. So obviously, like the, the film doesn't give a lot away in terms of explanations, and I think the the fact that people are pulling different things out of it depending on how they've seen it speaks to that. Um, it's kind of got one one I don't want to call it an explanation, but there's kind of a sequence at the start with a, a cuckoo that kind of sets up the the central metaphor, if you like, the other stuff. <laughs> revolves around now i haven't had the i haven't had the good fortune to see the the short that you made which this project kind of spinned out of but how did you approach that from a sort of like the writing and the conception standpoint because it must it must be quite hard to write something which is so ambiguous because obviously it has that starting point where it kind of sets that metaphor up but after that there are quite a lot of things that are open to interpretation or might come through more strongly to other people so how do you approach creating that sort of story I suppose um well I work with the the screenwriter Garrett Shanley so he wrote the scripts and and we yeah I mean we it didn't seem that that kind of um that mysterious to us I guess at the time and also I mean we, we probably had way more um way more explanation in the in the scripts or in earlier drafts and then started like pulling things out and then also in the edit taking certain things out that seem you know that a lot of the time um i think you're using visual language to convey a feeling or um an atmosphere or a kind of a, a contrast between the characters or you know that you can do with it with an image a lot of the time and their facial expressions that you don't necessarily need um them to be explaining stuff through dialogue or or whatever um and uh, that was definitely the case with this film um fan just pulling out like if they if they kind of referenced um their weird situation within the weird situation, it didn't really work in the same way as being stuck in an, in your own kind of fever dream works, you know? So, um, and that was something we talked about with the actors very early on. They, Jesse and Imogen were both on the, the same page as well. They actually wanted, um, I think there were a few scenes that were had a little bit more exposition that we, um, we took out, we, took, we gave them less dialogue in certain parts. Um so yeah. I, I don't know. I mean I, I think that they're the kind of films that um I'm interested in um and find it in it enjoyable and challenging to sort of to do that while making a film. Uh, but this film in particular, I mean if you explained everything that was happening, it would just it just lead to more questions, you know. <laughs> um and we weren't making, you know, lost. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah we did actually shoot a few more scenes that we that we didn't put into the final 
final cut of the film during that last sequence. Um, but yeah, um, I don't think they would have answered. <laughs> I don't think they would have answered more anyway. They probably would have uh, created more questions. How much time as a director did you put into thinking about how to convey the pa- the passage of time? Because obviously, it's it's quite it's by its very nature of the story it's a very kind of similar setting from scene to scene but obviously mm. you need to convey the fact that um tom and Gemma are kind of kind of slowly losing their minds a little bit and obviously you've got the added complication of the child ages at a much faster rate than a human child yeah. and i noticed there were all these kind of like little things that were intended to convey the passage of time so like the the measurement against the door frame is kind of like a very nice quick way of kind of establishing Mm -hmm. that aging speed but how much time did you did you put into coming up with kind of these things even like changes in terms of how they're doing their hair or the makeup or things like that because that's kind of a central thing to getting across how much time they've actually spent there i know that wouldn't necessarily to my mind, be anyway to be explicit in the 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 script, or if it is, it might just be a passing note. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting question, um, because there was definitely challenges in you know we weren't shooting in a real location. We had a set of just three exteriors, um, on a, in, a, in a warehouse. So, you know, say you were shooting, and and if you see Fox's the short film, it's on Vimeo and YouTube and stuff, um. It's in a similar kind of environment, but it was a real location, and we're able to shoot, you know, cutaways to like between buildings or uh, trees, or the sky, or whatever, um, and to help um, show the passage of time. But obviously, with this, <laughs> something to shoot, you know, you turn the camera around, and you'll see like a brick wall um, and a bunch of equipment and wires and stuff. So um, there were a few kind of techniques. One of them was. Um, using the sun and these sort of overlays to create this sort of dreamy um, sense of time passing and dissolves. Um, so, so you get the sense of um, both atmospherically things becoming quite surreal um, and also that time is passing and they've tried a few things. So we did a bit of that with like audio, just, um, and that was always kind of a plan um, which we were going to do in ADR and also in the edit, take um, like got the, the actors to read passages of dialogue saying you should turn this way and around that way, like when they're trying to get out of the place. Um, and Jesse did that and Imogen did that and then we kind of mixed them together and overlaid them and, and cross-faded them while simultaneously dissolving these sequences um, over the sun and, and, and their faces kind of dissolving into each other, which was probably inspired by um by a bunch of things but what i remember is that um sal bass's film phase four um did a lot did some of that kind of stuff so um it's a bit of that and then in terms of their um physicality and sort of weakening over time and degradation um the both the makeup artist and um and hair um, were brilliant, you know. So <clears throat> we, we talked a lot about what we could do. And um, uh, Jenny, uh, who, was, who was looking after her hair, had this brilliant idea about um, sort of giving 
Imogen at different like stages of her hair. <laughs> so like it's down and then it's up and then it goes into this kind of sad ponytail. <laughs> the like low ponytail and greasier. Um, and same with Jesse, his hair kind of got like a bit, uh, it was kind of fluffy at the sort of fro at the start and then it becomes kind of dank and limp. And then obviously with makeup, we sort of made them look uh, sick as well. Um, and, and we also had, because they, they stay in the same wardrobe the entire time, we did get um, changed the size though. So um, they start with kind of well-fitting clothes and then they're bigger and then they're even bigger again in the third act. So it was very much broken down across, um, to me anyway, it was, it was like a, a representation of um, youth, middle age and old age within the three acts of the film, even though they weren't getting like gray hair and you know, big beard. Um, in a slightly, um, in a slightly more abstracted way, but <clears throat> yeah. So the the wardrobe I think helps because you know the shoulders start sagging down here. It kind of gives the impression that they've lost weight and they're um, just looking a bit more rough. Um, and then also I think the set being painted the color is painted that sort of greeny um, pastel hue. <clears throat> it bounces this sort of greenish light back onto them. So we're able to also in the grade um, adjust the skin tone accordingly to sort of help them um, deteriorate as well. And I think all of that adds to the passage of time, like the, because it's as if, uh, you know, it's difficult to tell exactly, well, for all, how long do you think passed? How long time do you think passed for them? Um, I mean, by the time it was done, I mean, well over a year, I would have thought. I mean, just on the basis that when you yeah. when you first when you first go when you get the the first indication of any passage of time, you're already past three months basically. So I think on that sort of basis, something like that yeah. in my head, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's about it. That, that was what we we aimed for. <laughs> so um, so yeah, uh, and then obviously yeah, the the markings on the door was a very sort of simple way of um of doing that, and also the the introduction to the boy at the beginning of the second act where he um, does his little play. It was a way of kind of, um, it was like previously on <laughs> the, stuff, the stuff that you'd missed um, to kind of catch uh, up with the story um, for the audience anyway. On the, on the, the look of the film, because I kind of went a bit down a bit down a rabbit hole when I was thinking about this and actually circled back to some other um, interviews you'd done. What were the main influences on the look of the film? Because the thing that when you're when they're outside the the home in the evening, it actually, it rather reminded me of the exterior, um, or the kind of the famous still from The Exorcist, and I found that quite interesting. Because then I found the painting which inspired that, which I then found out in another interview was actually or CD or you know series of paintings which then inspired uh, the look of the, the neighbourhood they find themselves in with these, you know, the, the perfect house and then that disconnect yeah, yeah, between yeah. the way it looks in the exterior and all the rest of it. So I was wondering, between kind of like films and artwork, what were the... I mean, obviously there's a lot of influences that have probably gone into this, right? But what are the, the main ones that come to mind when you're when you were conceiving of it? For the aesthetic... Um... 
I mean, part part of the inspiration was like technical, and part of it was artistic, and it's probably a um, a blend of the two in the middle. Like the yeah, so the the that painting, Empire of Light by uh, Rennie Magritte, um, was in the script as a reference for the kind of surreal stillness of the place and the clouds being all yeah. kind of um, fluffy white clouds in the sky and looking a little bit like a weird um, painting. So that it was always the intention um, to make the place look quite surreal and still it had no wind, no rain, um, no insects, all that stuff. And um, it had to be, have a feeling of being totally artificial, but at the same time tangible. So we, I wanted to have this artificial light and this artificial sunlight kind of a feel to the place. So once we kind of knew that that was the intention, then we had to uh, figure out how to do it, which meant building a, uh, a set in a controlled environment and lighting it with artificial light and all that kind of stuff. Um, so then it's like, I was looking at, uh, well, I, I, I was a fan of Roy Anderson's films anyway, but um, I started looking at um, some of the breakdown stuff on um, Songs from the Second Floor and A Pigeon Sat in the Branch. And, um, it's, you know, it's, he, funny, it, it's funny you mention that, actually, because I saw it at, at Glasgow Film Festival, I saw Roy Anderson's right. latest film, like literally, oh, I yeah. think, a few, day, a few days after uh seeing vivarium so that that was quite clear that like even that kind of like the kind of like pallid sort of reflected green light that seems to kind of you know i think songs yeah. from the second floor and you the living are the ones that i was thinking of when i saw it i think right cool yeah so yeah so that you know he builds these sets that are exteriors then lights them so it was really it was very handy to look at that kind of stuff um in relation to vivarium and then um also, um, probably in terms of artistic references, like or aesthetic references, um, the photography of Gregory Crudson, um, the sun was sort of based on um, Oliver Ellison's uh, weather project that was in the Tate in London years ago. He built this big fake sun, um, and. Then the repetition in the photography of uh, Andreas Gursky was an inspiration as well. Um, and then in terms of films, like things like um, Antonioni's Red Desert, um, Tessie Gara's Woman in the Dunes, uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway, Jeff mm -hmm. uh, Murphy's film, um, The Quiet Earth. Um, Oh, and Todd Haynes' film Safe was oh, okay. uh, mm -hmm. an inspiration for both Foxes and then Vivarium. So all, all of those, yeah. In terms of creating this sort of the artificial yet tangible environment you've spoken about, one of the things which really jumped out to me on the, the first viewing was... Um, taking the the dialogue from uh the child and dubbing over uh jonathan harris over the top of it who played who, who's in the film at the start is the 
sort of the very creepy, weird um, estate agent, right. which is a fantastic performance. I absolutely, I absolutely loved that. Um, mm. But I, one thing I was wondering was when that when that idea came about, because I found it quite an interesting idea in that if you know the idea of the the uncanny valley that they talk about in kind of like computer generated yeah. graphics i found it quite an interesting idea because it was almost like an audio version of the uncanny valley it's yeah. like you know you know something's not quite right it like you know to it, it seems fine but it's just you know it's not um yeah. and i thought that was a wonderful way to kind of get across another aspect of kind of the unreality of it so i was wondering at what point that idea came in um, whether that came late, if it was always conceived that way, or it was conceived that way, but it was obviously impossible to make the Sen and Jennings. I tried <laughs> to uh, speak that way. Um, so in the script, he was supposed to have this um, horrible kind of way of copying Tom and Gemma. Um, kind of accurately but but a little bit wrong because he's not human he kind of lacks all humanity and you know it's all an approximation of, of humanity or something so um yeah like Sanon was is brilliant and so he did all the dialogue though in his own voice which made him too endearing um but I knew we were going to do something with it in audio post-production um, to make him less human and uh, therefore the scenes where uh, you know Tom throws him down on the ground or they drag him up into the car and stuff um, would seem like you you know you could relate to it and you, you might do it yourself you might go further which most people probably would <laughs> um, uh, but his scream was actually, his his kind of shrieking thing was totally real. Uh, we actually had to bring that down a couple of uh, octaves because it was too, it was just too shrill. Um, and he loved doing it. <laughs> I was afraid, you know, props would start smashing uh, on, on set. But um, yeah, so we, when we were editing the film, um, we did think about, we hadn't thought about it being John, Nothing, but we did have this slight problem, which was um, Senan had this Dublin accent, kind of neutral Dublin accent. Um, Aina, who is the older version, has a, a kind of slight Cork accent, mm. and then Jonathan has this uh, British accent. So there, and that was just the way it worked out, casting and all that. But it, we kind of knew that. It, we could make it work in in audio post because um, the guy's such a it's such a strange character. You can kind of play with it anyway. You aren't stuck um, to the rules of reality too much. So um, while we're cutting it, we're thinking, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if Jonathan did um, the boy? So we mailed Jonathan uh, or gave him a call or something and he said he'd do a little uh, demo. So we gave him a little bit of the uh, a clip, I think when he was being measured actually that, that section. And he did a demo, he, I think he was in a studio doing some ADR or voiceovers and, like and um, he recorded it there, sent it over and we lined it up. And it was like, oh shit, this is pretty good. It wasn't 
quite right. You know, it was uh, the lip sync wasn't exact, and um, but we could see that there's definitely some weird potential there, um, that it could work really well. So we basically said that's what we were going to do, um, and stuck with it, even though there was a lot of kind of resistance from people listening to it when it was still rough and financiers and all that kind of stuff going, uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. Um, but I knew Jonathan would, would be able to, to nail the lip sync better and then we could um, manipulate it. <clears throat> I was working with some brilliant uh, sound designers in, in Denmark then afterwards. So that took ages though, mixing the boy's voice, like the real boy in with Jonathan, back in with um, with the real boy and then also the older boy and, and all of that. And we had to add a lisp because Sennon had a slight lisp as he spoke and uh, Jonathan didn't. So we had to get Jonathan to add a slight one, but then we also had to like pull out certain um, vowels in post and then add in the kind of lip smacks that you normally take out in um, in dialogue editing. So we increased the sound with the little clicks uh, to help it fit into the boy's mouth, and um, yeah, so just it took it took a good bit of time, but it, I think it was worth it. Yeah, so no, no, I definitely would. Yeah, I I thought it really, it really, it really added to it. It's interesting to hear how difficult it was to do in post production as well, because I, I was because at first when I was first watching it, I you know, and also I only found out I'd, after I'd seen it the first time that that's that's the the technical process you'd gone through. But I was just like I was very taken aback when I was watching. It was like, oh, this sounds so weird. But is that him? <laughs> is that him? Like, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, for me, anyway, it certainly it certainly achieved the desired effect. Um, <laughs> how how challenging did you find the production process? Because as I understand it, you filmed exterior shots in Ireland. The in, I might be getting this wrong, but the, the interior shots, I think, were also in Ireland, but then the exterior of the house on the street mm. was in uh, Belgium, yeah. and that's where you had the, the set-up with the, the three. How how challenging was it to manage that shoot? Because I'm not, I'm not aware off the top of my head like what your time frame was on when the different bits happened. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> there's no other way of describing it. It was... Um, it was... We... Um, once Jesse came on board, he had a window to shoot. So, um, prep kind of got condensed and it was like a big rush to get ready to, to shoot on day one. Like I was painting the set with everybody else, uh, the night before shooting, we were all like covered in paint, uh, and, you know, sweeping up all the dust and trying to put a, put a roof on, you know, it was, it was, and there was no crew available and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was madness. But um, then the set originally was supposed to be um, three times, slightly more than three times the size that it was. So we're supposed to have like the opposite side of the street and here, and then a kind of junction across the bottom, but it was all too expensive. So we were only able to build a section of three, which meant having to shoot all reverse angles back into the same direction. Um, so I meant flipping the lights every time we needed to reverse and flip the car and take the nine off the door and take the hole away and clean the grass and tuck it in and, <clears throat> and all that kind of stuff. And then everything was reflective as well. The car was like a mirror with all the glass and the house was covered in glass reflecting back 
um, the crew because there was no opposite side of the street. So um, it was tricky. Yeah, <laughs> it was very tricky. Um, but we kind of came up with some solutions. And one of those actually going back to the, um, the design and uh, around that painting and the uh, um, Empire of Light and the Exorcist and stuff with the single street light outside. Like that was, in, in, originally we were supposed to have a, a, a row of lights that would kind of, there was just sit like little spotlights, you know, boom, boom, boom along the street and go off into the distance. Um, but that became uh, impossibly possible to do practically. Um, so we said, okay, we'll have one light just outside their house which ended up becoming much more like the painting than we'd even, I, I mean, thinking about it now for the first time since you mentioned The Exorcist, I forgot that that was based on uh, that painting as well. <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, and then we, I, I, in, for the nighttime shots, we had to, um, we fogged up the area so that you create, um, you know, extra additional depth because of the, um, Diffusion, like aerial diffusion. Yeah. Um, so there was all of that kind of stuff was pretty challenging. And then um, the hole that Tom digs, we couldn't actually dig a hole there because the, the floor is concrete and it was like, a, it would have been impossible to actually take up the floor because underneath the concrete is all this kind of uh, steel uh, mesh. So we we're only able to go as deep as the day one um, photography which had there was a step outside the house which is about like that height um, so we were only able to raise the stage the height of the step minus about an inch so people wouldn't really notice so um, the, the hole is about that deep so like Tom like Jesse would have to jump into it we you know with some stuff obscuring um, the side like dirt uh, piled up and then cross his legs as he'd go into it, like kind of a yoga position. And then we had a, a shovel that was only the handle of a shovel sliced in half that he kind of <laughs> stick in. And, um, and then the interiors were all um, in Ireland, yeah. <clears throat> and they were all uh, built as well, sets. So they were a little bit like the exterior set in, insofar as you couldn't, um, you know, you, there was no ceiling a lot of the time or there was no, you, know, you couldn't just kind of shoot out a window because you'd just be looking into nothing, uh, an empty studio. So um, keeping the kind of emotional energy right between all of that stuff and the continuity, you know, when they'd be going into the house and out of the house, but it was across a couple of different countries, um, was, was also quite challenging and tricky, but I had two brilliant actors, so um, they made my life a lot easier. Like all of the, the physical shooting and production stuff was, um, was yeah, kind of a nightmare. But um, actually, the actors were, were brilliant and uh, they made it all um, a pleasure. Um, I suppose that, I, 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 you probably can't really um, tell me too much, but I suppose that where you, where do you want to go next with the? Your filmmaking, because obviously the, the and I haven't seen I haven't seen your previous feature, but I understood you worked with uh, Garrett on that uh, as well. Yeah. So is that is that something you would um, 
like to do going forward like continue to work with um kind of the same writer for instance and kind of have this very collaborative thing or would you prefer to try and uh look at some other work i'm just where do you where do you see it yourself going from here and uh, probably the kind of rom-com market is pretty big uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> um yeah no i'm working with garrett on um two new scripts uh three two new we're like we're going into we're starting to cast a film i don't know when we're going to shoot <laughs> with all of this going on until probably until they have a vaccine or something but um we started casting it and we've been working on the the script for a couple of years um and we're on the second draft of another project and we have an outline for a third project so um and they're all pretty odd <laughs> films um the one we're supposed to be doing next is called Nocebo, and it's like the opposite to placebo. And um, I mean, the word is the opposite to placebo. Um, and it's about a fashion designer and a Filipino nanny and how their lives come together. Their kind of fates intertwine. Um, and it's, it's, it's really about the fast fashion industry and the exploitation of the East by the West. And it's a, it's a supernatural thriller set between the Philippines and London. And um, they're working on this kind of dystopian um, fable, which is a reimagining of the David and Goliath story called Goliath. Um, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, uh, that's the one we're on the second draft with. And then we're, um, yeah, we started working on a Sasquatch film as well. So they're, um, <laughs> they're all, uh, all quite different, but all um, interesting thematically to me <laughs> anyway. So they all sound really interesting and I'm very much looking forward to your uh, future work. Um, thank you for Vivarium, a film that I, I enjoyed uh, greatly and certainly the audience at the Glasgow Film Festival seemed to enjoy it as well. Um, so thank you for taking the time to talk to me, Lorcan, and uh, best of luck for the future. You're very welcome, and uh, thanks very much. No problem. Okay, so we're back and we're at this part of the podcast where we like to share a short film. Um, a lot of the people um, are involved in Cenotopia have been very much involved with short films, uh, particularly the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Um, so one of us, well, we all pick a short film that we like that we recommend you checking out and uh, we try to do it all under a minute. This has been the challenge and um, most of us have been able to do that quite well. Um, so I'll go first, uh, somebody time me. Um, I, I suggest that you watch um, a short film called Or Wally. I saw it actually originally at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival in 2017. It was one of the first Edinburgh Short Film Festivals I was a part of. Um, the film is directed by Martin Lennon um, and the DP is a, a, a friend of ours at Cinetopia, Stuart Edwards. And we actually showed it at one of our first Cinetopia events ever. Um, and had a Q&A with Stuart. Um, Orwelli is a, a documentary, it's lighthearted, short film that um, follows uh, Scotland's most unique mascot, Wally the Warrior, um, which is uh, for the football club uh, Stenhouse Muir, a, a small, a small um, football club in, in Scotland. And uh, the mascot at the time happened to be um, uh, 
done by uh, Eleanor, who is a mother of eight and a granny of seven. And it's really just a, a sweet take on, um, you know, what it is to be a, a football fan. Um, and I, I think it's quite lovely and um, it's worth your watch. All right. So next, next who's up for the challenge, I'm going to give it to you, Chris. Dude, would you like to go? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my recommendation this week is Natasha Setner's um, Royal College of Art graduate film, uh, Nigel. So it's an animation. Um, Natasha Setner also actually was at Edinburgh Short Film Festival in 2017 with her animation Nero. Um, Nigel is a frame-by-frame charcoal sketched animation about a lonely gannet, uh, the bird, uh, who struggles to find love and friendship in the stone statue birds with whom he shares his island. Um, I thought that there was something to the isolation of this film that maybe people could connect with right now. Um, it's Her films are always very um, sort of dark in nature. She deals with some really complex themes, but she finds a way to um, bring a little bit of playfulness and lightheartedness to uh, the subject matters. Um, and uh, I think it's a lovely little film. You can watch it on uh, Short of the Week. Uh, we'll share a link. And... Um, Definitely check out more of Natasha's work. She's a she's an excellent excellent animated filmmaker. Great. Okay, Betty. So what what short film do you have for us today? So, uh, famous friends Errol Morris and Werner Herzog. Um, back in the day, uh, Errol Morris was apparently known for being rather lazy and having a difficult time motivating himself a lot of the time, but he really wanted to shoot a film called Gates of Heaven um, about the pet cemetery business, and Werner Herzog stood there and said, listen, the day I wash your film is the day I eat the shoes that I'm wearing right now. Anyway, on the premiere of Gates of Heaven, um, Werner Herzog had to spend the whole day cooking his own shoes, which he then consumed um, with some onions uh, at the premiere as a sort of pub- publicity stunt for Errol Morris's film, which is all documented by Les Blank in the film Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe from, the 19- from 1980 and collected by Criterion. Well, now I know what I'm doing this, uh, this evening. <laughs> <laughs> not, but not cooking a shoe. That's a good one. Yeah, I think Werner Herzog eating shoes is a good show. Yep. I'll have to check that one out. And Jim, finally. Yeah, so I'd, I've done my usual thing of uh, forgetting to really pick something until the, the last minute. Um, so if I start myself now, uh, the one I've picked is, is a very old Vimeo staff pick called Urban Isolation by Russell Houghton, which features um, basically somebody skateboarding around Los Angeles, which is completely deserted. And it, it makes for quite an interesting um, thing to watch at the moment because it, it looks very calming and in this weird way kind of, of beautiful. Um, but, I mean, basically I spent my time wondering how it had been filmed. And it's a very different thing to watch now because you now think you could probably just go outdoors and just film it anytime you want, basically. Um, so it makes for quite an interesting... Uh, look, it's very short. It's only about three minutes long, um, but it has a sort of a, a nice calming effect, um, and it just seemed vaguely, vaguely appropriate in these lockdown times. Well, that's lovely. I think all of those sound like really great films. We should definitely check them all out, and um, we'll try to put links to the ones that are online um, in our description on 
Anchor and various podcast um, formats. Well, that's what we have for April for Cinetopia. Thanks to Lork and Finnegan for joining us remotely as well. Uh, we look forward to catching back up again with soon with our live version of Cinetopia in a couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. Uh, the Cinetopia radio show is produced by myself, Amanda, a producer of Cinetopia and RPP Productions, and Jim Ross, uh, managing editor of Take One Magazine. A big thank you to Betty and Carice for joining us today and look forward to seeing you guys in the future. Um, for more information about Cinetopia and our partners, go to cinetopiashow.com or follow us up on social media. It's just at Cinetopia on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Cinetopia Hub. Thank you so much and see you next time. Mm-hmm.